Welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. I am your host, Dwayne Diker. This is Episode 7, Getting Social. Thanks for joining me. This podcast focuses on appellate issues and appellate practice in Florida and both the state and federal courts. And each week we talk about Florida appellate practice through discussions with members of Florida's appellate community. My guest this week is well-known in Florida for her appellate and intellectual property expertise, Deneen Wasilek. Deneen is the owner and founder of DPW Legal in Wesley Chapel. Interestingly, she is the only lawyer in Florida to be board certified in both intellectual property law and appellate practice. She's also a recognized authority on the use of social media, which is what I'll be talking to her about in this episode. My interview with Deneen is coming up next. Deneen, thank you for joining me on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Thank you for having me, Dwayne. So you are a board-certified appellate lawyer, uh, but you're also a board-certified intellectual property lawyer, right? That's correct. And what are your primary areas of appellate practice? Um, for appellate practice, I focus primarily on appeal. We also do family appeals. Um, I've done a probate appeal here and there. It just any, any, any civil appeal, really, with a particular focus on IP when I can. Sure. Now, I always ask, is there something in particular that you love about being an appellate lawyer? Um, it's so geeky. <laughs> um, I really, I always uh, described it as just loving getting to attack the closed book test. I think because you have a set of facts that you have to work with, whatever they are, they are. And then within that, there's so much room for good advocacy. And so that's what I like. I like the writing aspect of it and really finding, making the best out of whatever you're given. Yeah, I've never heard it described quite that way as a closed book test, but that makes a lot of sense. We're, we're confined to the record, and it's a lot different than, than trial practice. Yes, absolutely. Definitely. So you also have a reputation uh, for being a bit of a rock star as it comes to managing social media. Um, rock star is a great word. I love it. Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, in fact, you are currently the social media chair for the Florida Bar's appellate practice section and maybe other places too? Yeah, so I, I, I manage and chair the social media for the Florida Bar Appellate Practice, and I actually got, helped get that launched, I think at your request when you were chair. Yes. Um, helped get that launched for the appellate practice session about two years ago now. Um, I also assist with social media for the business law section of the Florida Bar. That's sort of with my IP hat on. Um, and I have in the past been in charge of or started um, social media for Women Lawyers of Pasco, for the East Pasco Bar, which I'm a past president of both of those organizations. Um, most recently, I started a Twitter account for my college class because we have a big reunion coming <laughs> up and I was asked to do that. Um, so I have about six Twitter accounts on my uh, on my um on my phone right now, as well as several Facebook pages, including, of course, my own law firm's page as well. So you see where I got rock star. See? Fair enough. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a few years ago when I was chair of the appellate practice section. Part of my mission when I was chair was to kind of you know, drag the section to a little bit more modern footing. And one of those things is to have a social media presence, which was something that I spearheaded, but that you really um, – uh, took the reins and, and developed, and that has become, I think, uh, pretty successful, right? I think so. I mean, we get a lot of views. Um, I think a lot of credit actually has to go to the Florida Bar itself for creating such a um, a wonderful social media presence for lawyers in general. Um, and then 
allowing the sections to individually sort of come up on the coattails of that and create opportunities for interaction with members because that's really what social media is about is the social part of being interactive with the people that you're trying to serve and not just, you know, in the past it was you would get a letter from the bar, right? <laughs> and by the time you got the letter, the information might even be stale. So it's really nice to be able to put things in front of people um, a little more quickly and to have that interaction back and forth. Yeah, I see that the social media, at least for like the public practice section, it serves a couple functions to me. One is it it keeps the members informed of what's going on, but also kind of keeps them interested by having this stream of things that are happening and they're thinking about but it also, I think, helps with outreach and getting other people interested. Right, and be and just getting people engaged and thinking about um, how they can really be a part of what the of the section is doing and making it more accessible. I think that you don't have to be on the leadership committee in order to be a part of the section. Yeah, there's there's not uh, well, there may be days that go by, but there's not too many days that go by that I don't think about something having to do with the appellate practice section because it's in my social media feed, which I think is great. Well, that's the plan, so I'm glad it's working. (laughs) Now, you had mentioned the Florida Bar. The Florida Bar is definitely sort of a leader in social media. Uh, They have a great social media team and are very active in in, uh, various things. And I I want to talk to you about that a little bit. I want to talk to you about what is this hashtag appellate Twitter thing? Oh, well, so hashtag appellate Twitter is something that that goes back many, many years now, I think. Um, and it's just appellate practitioners nationwide uh, talking about geeky appellate things. Um, sometimes it's about particular cases. Sometimes it's about you know the latest debate over commas or spaces or or, or footnotes um, or any of those kinds of things. Uh, and it's just there's a lot of uh, wonderful thought leaders in the appellate practice space who participate in that. And it's really kind of nice to be able to do a search because that's what hashtags are really for is to help you find the content that you're looking for and find other people talking about the fun things that you like. And for me, appellate stuff is fun. So It is amazing the breadth of people on Twitter, on the appellate Twitter, you know, from professors to judges to mm-hmm. practitioners all around the country. And, and one of the things I was thinking about is the Florida Bar does a lot of, a lot of tweeting in this space too. Yeah, the, the – we're very lucky, I think, as a bar and that the bar was fairly forward-thinking in bringing on a full-time social media manager um, fairly early on. Um, do you understand that the bar as a whole has a full-time social media manager? That's someone whose their entire job is – And it shows, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean his entire job – he's a wonderful gentleman. Um, his entire job is to – is to make the bar look good on social media and interact with its members. And one thing that I've, I'm very appreciative of is that the bar, the big bar, the bar as a whole, works really hard to interact with sections and local bars and share their information um, with its you know, tens of thousands of members. So. so one of the interesting things I've noticed is that some lawyers are active on social media and some are not. Uh, I've had one guest on the program, I won't call him out, who has no social media presence whatsoever, which is kind of interesting. But uh, what what is your advice to lawyers about using social media to promote their practice? I think that social media is a tool, and you have to think about it as a tool, but it's a very good tool because I think at the end of the day, people want to work with people they like. Um, and you can get to know and like someone even when you can't spend physical time with them as much through social media. And it took me 
a while to come to that realization. Um, you know, I joined Facebook a very, very long time ago, and for a very long time, I kept it only very close, you know, friends and family members. And then when I opened my own practice, uh, I, I remember very distinctly, I joined a Rotary Club, and I started getting friend requests from people in my Rotary Club, even if I hadn't met them yet. And at first, I was like, <laughs> oh, no, I'm not really sure I want to do this. And then I... And then I thought about it for a moment, and I and I figured these are the people who are going to be my referral sources. These are the people who I want to get to know better, and I want to get to know them outside of just one meeting a week. And so I sort of took a deep breath and said, okay, this is going to be a little different perhaps, but I'm going to go ahead and open up who I consider a friend on social media um, and they are actually very good friends now. I mean, and, and sometimes it's good. Like, I've met you. You're someone I, I want to get to know better. That's good enough. I don't usually accept requests from people who I've never at least interacted with. Um, but there are many people whom I've never met in person, but I've interacted with online to the point that, okay, I think, you know, we are friends now. Um, and so it's a really good way to sort of expand your circle. Yeah, I agree with that. But it does – it leads to some interesting questions about how do you manage your social media What's the balance between things that are more personal and things that are more business? Because I, I agree with what I think you're saying, which is you know, part of the way we form bonds with people in business is through our personality and things that we like and sharing common interests. So you know, I think if you have a, a social media account that only tweets out, I spoke here and I presented a paper here and I won this case, that's great. But uh, there's some value to getting people getting to know that you went to the Avengers movie this weekend. And, Which I did. You know, did you? Okay. <laughs> I have not yet. Maybe next weekend. And post weekend. it on social media. <laughs> I have tickets for next weekend. But you know what I'm saying? So how do you have a, any thoughts about how you manage that balance? Yeah, I think it is really important and helpful to be yourself but to be your best self on social media. And I know that that is open to criticism of, you know, you're only posting the Pollyanna-ish stuff. And I don't necessarily think that that is the case either, but you certainly want to put your best foot forward. You know, I I always think if I'm going to post something on social media, do I care what other people, you know, think about who is seeing this and is it going to be a problem if a client sees this, for example? Right. Um, And... You know, and A, there are times where you can use settings to have some people see things and not others, and that might be appropriate from time to time. Right. Um, on, on Facebook, at least, on, on Twitter, that's harder. Um, but then also uh, just think about, at the same time, being your authentic self. Um, I, I think that if you only post the relentlessly positive things and never admit to human failing, then it's not authentic either. Mm-hmm. And so I find it helpful and useful to talk about struggle sometimes, not in a like woe is me kind of way, but in a way that can be helpful to other people without even realizing it necessarily. And not in the classic too much information sort of way, right? Right, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you don't need to, I mean, you don't necessarily need to know what I ate last night, but sometimes it's fun to talk about, oh, you tried this new restaurant, great. Right. You know? But yeah, because that's how we make connections with people is yeah. shared interests and that sort of thing. Yeah. What about as between the platforms? Do you have thoughts as to the usefulness as like between Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn? Sure. I mean, I think that I think that Facebook for folks who are probably 
in the 30 to 50 or up range is the best way <laughs> to communicate and reach in. I mean, I don't know about the, you, the but my parents. The kids stopped using Facebook the when kids grandparents don't use got Facebook on, right? as much. And you didn't even mention Instagram, which is what a lot of the kids, I mean, a lot of younger um, younger folks do use more of um, to stay away from Facebook. Uh, so I think Facebook can be very effective if that's your your friend group and your uh, demographic that you're trying to reach. Um, I think Twitter is very good for broadening your reach because um, you can seek out people on Twitter that you couldn't necessarily just send a friend request to on Facebook and build a relationship and interact with them in a way that you would not otherwise. On Twitter, I have so many relationships with particularly IP attorneys all over the world that I've met and spoken to at conferences and then started following and then interact with um, that would not necessarily translate to the Facebook world at first, at least. Um, mm-hmm. they, sometimes they do sort of migrate there, too. Um, as far as LinkedIn is concerned, I, I, that is really sort of the most professional um, kind of interaction, and I, I keep that to people that I have a professional relationship with. Um, I attended like a LinkedIn for Lawyers CLE many, many years ago and decided at that point, based upon the advice given there, to keep it to a connection that I have met or that someone has introduced me to um, and not accept random LinkedIn requests from recruiters or people trying to sell me something or any of those kinds of things um, because the idea is that if you have a relationship with someone on LinkedIn, there's a little bit of an implied endorsement that you know that person and their and the work that they do. And so I try not to associate on LinkedIn with people that I haven't at least met or had an interaction with before they sent me a LinkedIn request. Um, and always, by the way, if you're sending a LinkedIn request to someone whom you have a more tenuous relationship, explain why, not just use the standard, hi, I'd like to connect with you on LinkedIn, that they kind right. of just set you up for. It is interesting that the difference between the three those three services, and I would, I'm leaving out Instagram <laughs> just because I'm not as familiar with it, but the, the nature of the connections are different, right? Facebook Absolutely. is a much more personal connection. Uh, Twitter, you're sort of shouting into the, uh, you're shouting out into the universe, and people can choose to follow you or not, but you mm-hmm. have no control really over who is who is hearing you, right, or who is following you. And and LinkedIn, I hadn't thought about what you're saying. I, I tend to avoid requests from people that I don't know, just because I figure the sales pitch is coming, right. But you're right. I think that there is there's a certain representation there that you are linked to that person in some way. So that's an interesting. Yeah, uh, that's, that was this, that was something that I learned at a CLE many moons ago, just kind of implemented for myself. I just feel that it's more helpful to do it that way. I mean, I still have over a thousand connections on LinkedIn because as I, as I tell my children, I, I went to a big high school. I went to a big college. I went to a big law school. I, I met a lot of people at all those things. And then I worked in a big city. And then I worked in another big city. So I know a lot of people that I've just met from all these different things. Like, you know, that doesn't mean that, that I have a thousand people who um, who I talk to every day, really. Christmas cards, <laughs> that, too. Or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, I think it is important to maintain those connections over, over the years of your life. I think social media is wonderful for helping do that. I don't think... Um, one phenomenon that I have observed is there are times where uh, by interacting on social media, you can become better friends with someone now than you were at the time that you first met each other. Um, You know, I have a few folks from high school who I feel like that's the case, that we were never really close in high school, but from 
continued interaction on social media. We've gotten to know each other better now than we did then. Um, same thing with college. Same thing with law school. And on the flip side of that, I have friends that are more virtual friends that we have developed a friendship, but I've rarely or never seen in person, yeah. which is interesting too. Yeah, I mean, I I I was a very early internet adopter, um, and uh, you know, was in chat rooms in college which was not a thing really when I was in college um, and was blogging. You know, my husband and I both blogged in the 90s. And he was actually one of, the, one of the first bloggers. Like literally there was like 50 people who all collected to each other and he was among that group um, in the early 90s. And, so, and everything was hand-coded. It was pre-blogger. It was pre-WordPress. Um, the people who eventually invented those things were part of those groups, and so we know those people. Not, I mean, not like they're close friends today anymore because they've gone in an entirely different direction. Um, but sort of got very comfortable with having online friends very early on in the you know in the '90s and 2000s, and you know even today, for example, um, some of my best friends are a group of women that I met online in a pregnancy support group when I was pregnant with my first son 16 years ago and some of them I've met in person some of them I still haven't um, but we we talk almost daily to this day um, we should ask them to download this podcast I will I'll tell them <laughs> you shout know, out to PCK no. <laughs> I wanted to say that we, we shouldn't gloss over the fact that all of these platforms do have some issues Absolutely. I mean we know Facebook has privacy issues and Twitter has had some changes, some some issues, and LinkedIn, I think, has has accidentally revealed passwords and that sort of thing. So they're certainly not perfect, but um, they still remain a tool that can be useful. We have to keep those things in mind, though. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely um, don't mean to sound mercenary to say that I absolutely view social media as a tool, and I think if you approach it with just a, a little bit of care and thought – that um, it can be a very useful tool, but for very good ends, including maintaining really good relationships and getting publicity for your business and helping you, you know, find work and all the all these different things. Um, I, you know, I think I've come to the conclusion that to you know the best way to market is to let yourself shine through, um, but. You know that doesn't mean you you know you stand on the table and you know dance with a with your with your bra over your head kind of thing. Right. I mean, um, not that I've ever done that. Actually, now I feel like I need to make that very clear. Um, but 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 you know what I mean. Like you can let yourself shine through in an authentic way, but still a careful way. Yes. What about podcasting? Do you consider podcasting to be a part of the larger universe of social media? I think so. I think that um, that podcasting is just really exploding right now as far as popularity goes um, and is such a wonderful and interesting media. I think it's great to see um, traditional media go into podcast and do deep dives on things that they would not have been able to do on a television show or on a radio segment, um, but also just – you know, people who are fans and interview shows. I mean, I was listening to a podcast on my way here because I... Um, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I just, I, I tend to like information um, when, I'm, when I'm sort of idle in the car, those kinds of things. And 
podcasting, there's something for everyone out there. And there's a really good way to connect people humanly. It's amazing how much, you know, free entertainment and information is available through podcasts and just about any area that you may be interested in, somebody is probably talking about it, whether it's a, a, a TV show or a book or a, an area of science or an area of math or, you know, writers. I yeah. mean, there's just the, the topics are incredible because almost anybody with a microphone has access to, you know, publish their opinions to the world. And it's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's amazing times we live in. Yeah, it really is. I mean, and it's so it's I mean. It shows that people are hungry for information. I think the very first podcast that I listened to was probably um, the writers of Lost, that television show, Mm -hmm. did a podcast where they recounted what they were thinking. And if you were really into that show, then listening to the Lost podcast the next day and hearing more about the detail of the thought that went into different choices was like so geeky and so wonderful and so interesting. Um, And so there's sort of that genre of the deep dive into more traditional media that's put out there that, you know, people want to hear. And so they do it. But then there's also things like this where we're talking about a very narrow set of interests that, you know, it's a a fairly small community. But I think there's still um, enough interest that, you know, people are listening to your podcast. I know I have. Well, this is a, it is a super small community, really by design. I mean, I figure that the number of people who are who are interested to level you and I are interested in it in Florida public practice can't be very large, but it's bigger than I thought. Yeah, and some of it might be my mom downloading the show, <laughs> right? That sort of thing. But yeah, no, it, Mom's it has been that great. Way. Yeah, and there are not as many lawyers in the podcasting field as I would have thought, Mm -hmm. Um, but maybe that's starting. Maybe we're starting to see more of that because there's so many things that could be talked about in this area, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of other platforms for for getting the word out, you have been running an appellate procedure uh, web blog for a long time. Yeah, I actually... In preparation for this, I looked to see, and I, I started it in January of 2009, so I guess I just missed my 10-year anniversary and didn't realize it. Uh-oh. Um, but, uh, but I I started a Florida appellate procedure weblog in January of 2009, um, mostly because I just really love the procedure aspect of, a, of appellate practice and being a total rules geek, and that's kind of my thing. Um, and so I thought it would be useful and helpful to write about all the little rule things that get people caught up from time to time, the track rule changes when they happen, and those kinds of things. Um, so that's when I started it, and um, and it's you know it's been on and off. There are spurts where I write you know several things a month, and there are spurts where it goes a few months without anything. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. um, and now. Uh, I'm not the only writer on it um, because Jared Krugar, who works with me, also writes um, writes things from time to time. Um, but we work hard to get out some interesting information. And what is gratif- gratifying to me is that more than once I've had people say, I had a question and I Googled it and I found the answer on your blog. Um, and so – uh, to me, that's helpful because usually when I'm trying to come up with things that I want to write, I, you know, if I have an interesting issue that I'm not sure I know the answer to and I need it for a case or whatever, I'll go find out the answer and then write about it so maybe someone else doesn't have to do all the work that I just did. Um, and uh, it's, it's been a fun platform. I mean, I really enjoy doing it. 
And that's great marketing too, right? It's getting sure. your name out there as an expert in the field and, and making yourself useful to people yeah. by providing this kind of information. I get a lot of calls from people who've who found me from that. Um, now, many of them are people who are pro se and maybe don't have the you know have the greatest cases, but many of them are lawyers who were searching for an answer to a question, saw me there, and said, "Okay, yes, let me just have you help me with this instead of trying to do the appeal myself." Now, I will put a link in the show notes, but you should give out the URL for yeah, your absolutely. Blog. It's floridaappellate.com. Now, since you are an intellectual property lawyer, I know I have called you from time to time with questions about intellectual property things. Sure. And there's a lot of overlap between intellectual property and social media because there can be intellectual property challenges, right, with people who are using social media to share things. And what, what, are, some of the, what are some of the problems that people get into with social media? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's part of why it sort of worked out that I – end up being a little bit of a go-to on the social media stuff because of my IP background and being able to spot those issues and avoid them and not get folks into trouble. Um, you know, one of the big things is that, uh, you know, a lot of people think, suffer under the misconception, if it's on the internet, I can just use it without permission um, and, you know, like to do a Google image search and just pick a picture and use it. Um, and that's copyright infringement. Um, you know, copyright exists. It subsists, is what the statute says, um, from in, in photographs from the moment they're taken. And putting them on the Internet does not wipe that away. You don't have to have a registration to own a copyright. Mm-hmm. Um, the registration comes later if you want to enforce, and there's benefits to that. But you don't have to have that registration to own it. And so um, I, a lot of the IP types of cases that I handle are – People who have put images that they found online on their weblog or in a social media feed, and um, or on their firm website, and um, and now they're getting sued for copyright infringement because they didn't properly license those images. So that's a that's a big one: is to not just randomly utilize things that are that you find. You know, it's real easy to do a Google Images search and say, "Oh, that picture is perfect for me," but. Um, but there's, you know, someone put time and energy into making that that picture, and it is protected by copyright law. And so, unless you're very sure that you have their permission, um, you shouldn't really be using it for, you know, to sell your business, for example. Now, is there any sort of get out of jail free card on that? If you if you stop using these images when you get a cease and desist letter, is it too late at that point? It is too late at that point. Um, copyright's a strict liability statute, and so if you violate the um, the one of the rights of the author, which include the exclusive right of publication and reproduction, um, then you are an infringer, is the way the statute is written. And then there are defenses to that infringement, but honestly, I didn't know is not one of those defenses. Um, you know, there there can be some potential lessening of. Uh, of statutory damages if you're, quote, an innocent infringer. But an innocent infringer isn't really just, oh, I didn't know copyright law existed. You, you, know, you have to know – you're presumed to know uh, know the law. That's more of a thing where, like, I thought I bought a license, but it wasn't a valid license or, you know, those kinds of things are what a court would consider an innocent infringement. But even so, that does not get you off the hook. It just lowers – the potential statutory damages and statutory damages are not even necessarily 
um, the damages. If you caused actual damages and they're higher, um, it is the plaintiff's election to choose actual damages or statutory damages. So, um, you know, those statutory damages, they can range from as low as $300 per work for an innocent infringer to $150,000 per work for willful infringement. That's sort of the FBI warning that you see at the front of every right. movie. <laughs> FBI warning, you know, penalties of up to $150,000. That's statutory damages for willful infringement can be up to that. Um, but that range of $300 to $150,000 is a huge range of potential liability, and you can't count on being on the low end for that. And what about, I understand if you take an image and you attach it to a post and you are posting as if your own, but what if you are leak, linking or deep linking to another website? Is, it, is there still concerns there? There are. Um, Part of the problem with linking and deep linking is that the copyright statute gives exclusive rights to the author, and one of those exclusive rights is the right of public display. And posting something on the Internet is considered a public display. So even if you are pulling it from their site and displaying their, you know, their picture served up from their server, you're still potentially violating their right of public display if you're doing it without their permission. Um, you're also sucking their ban- bandwidth, which is less of a monetary strain now than it once was, but right. is, is a big deal and has been litigated over many times. Um, so, you know, the the issue is not is that an infringement. The issue really boils down to is there some reason that that would be considered fair use and. Um, often the answer is no. I mean, I always think of, when I teach this, I always think of my, 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 my dear favorite character, Inigo Montoya, saying, you keep using that word. It does not mean what you think it means. <laughs> um, you know, fair use is not just, I want to use it so it's fair. Um, it's a very complicated four-factor test, and one of the biggest issues on that test is, are you supplanting a market for something? So if there is an existing market for licensing those photos, for example, and you're not taking advantage of that, you're just using it, then that's a big factor that weighs against finding a fair use. Um, But it's a squishy four-factor test. It's great for lawyers. It's horrible for people trying to make an assessment of whether their use is something that's going to be problematic or not. Um, Certainly, the more public your use, the more conservative most people should try to be about a fair use analysis Mm -hmm. because you're going to get, you know, you're more likely to get caught if it's out on the internet. You know, um, the content owners have spent a lot of money coming up with a lot of tools to ferret out infringement online. And they have tools to find your photographs online, photographs. They have tools to find music, you know, embedded in YouTube videos. And they have tools to find video clips and all those all those things. Um, so if you're posting it publicly on the internet, you have to assume that it will be found um, and, uh, and think about it. You know, I, I, my kids at this point are, you know, so ingrained in this that I, you know, my son, when he was in fifth grade, like found a dolphin picture online for a presentation he was using in school. And he's like, mommy, am I going to get in trouble? They do sell this. And I said, well, I think that you're, you know, for, for your one-time use for your project in school, we're, we're okay. That we're, I'm, I'm fr- pretty confident that that falls within <laughs> fair use. Um, right. But you have to be really careful when teaching kids about fair use in school because the educational environment is very different than you know when they're going out in the business world as far as how that analysis is going to play out. So, are there is there a specific list of like best practices that you recommend for for avoiding these types of problems? Sure. I mean, so. Th- 
first of all, there is no like easy checkbox of if I only use X percent, then it's not fair use, right? So then it's fair use, for example. So there's no like hard and fast rule. But as far as best practices are concerned, uh, you know, I really caution clients to you know, take as little as possible to get your point across if you're going to use something. The more, you know, the fair use statute talks about education and commentary and First Amendment type principles. And so the more you're talking about that First Amendment stuff and you're doing like real commentary, the more likely using some of the other person's work to comment on it and do social commentary or political commentary or whatever, um, that's closer to fair use than just, look at this, it's funny, or look at this, this is a popular story and I want you to, to land on my page with my ads instead of your page with your ads. Um, you know, Those are the kinds of things that a court is going to look at. So I tell people whenever possible – just use your own stuff. It's more compelling anyway to take your own pictures, to um, to create your own content as much as possible. I really, I mean, especially nowadays when every everybody has a very high quality camera in their pocket at all times, pretty much, right? And so, be on the lookout for creating your own stock photography. I have. I remember one day I was driving and I saw. A dead end sign with a beautiful the sky behind it was beautiful. I was like, that's perfect. And I took the picture and I didn't know what I was gonna use it for. But someday you'll find a use. Oh, for I, that. I have. <laughs> I have. It's used on my blog for my discussion of what a PCA is, right? Uh, the per current reference is dead end, end of the road. So, you know, and it's a it's a nice picture and it looks like stock photography, and I made my own stock photography. Um, whenever I go to a courthouse, I make sure I get a good picture of a courthouse because I will probably use it to illustrate a blog a blog post later. Um, or social media. I use a lot of my own um, images when I um, when I do social media for the APS, for example, or you know have people take pictures that are active and those kinds of things. So making your own content really just takes away the question, right? Um, if you are going to use stock images, make sure you're getting them from good sources. And by good sources, I mean make sure you truly understand the license terms and follow them. Um, you know, something that's listed as, you know, Creative Commons, for example, is wonderful. Thank you for letting us use this in the public. But if it's Creative Commons attribution and you don't give the attribution, then you can actually still be sued for copyright infringement, um, for example. And so make sure you understand your license terms. There are some um, services that have more, more reliable license terms than others. There's a lot of websites where... They say, oh, these images are free, but if you read the fine print, you realize that you know, they really let anyone upload anything, and there's really no good guarantee that the people who did the uploading had the right to do that. Right. And so you can get caught up that way. One of the things, one of the good uses of Google Images is if you found something like that and you've used that, you know, you found an image that you think is well licensed, go ahead and do a Google image search of that image and see how else it is being used online. And if you're finding it on seven or eight different, um, you know, free sites and maybe the names are different or stay away. Like, don't get yourself caught up in that. Unfortunately, there's actually been some folks who've really taken advantage of that sort of Wild West thing and go out and sue people, like, look for people who are, who have been caught in those kinds of traps and and sue them and try and hold them up for, for, um, for, for attorney's fees and costs and and damages. And so it's just really better to know where you're getting stuff. Um, Another good practice, actually, is to 
use stuff that you know is not protected by copyright because it's too old. Um, for example, uh, you know, I have I have a blog post on my website that has links to all all sorts of pre nineteen twenty four images that are in public libraries that have been scanned and, and are public public domain because of the age of those images. Um, and I, that's just a thing that I do. I use a lot of those old pictures, and I don't. I know. I know it's not going to be a problem. Um, and it actually creates kind of an interesting look for my blog as a result, too. Um, but Because you know, I think, and I'm going to pull this out of the top of my head now, sure. that copyright protection lasts the life of the author plus 70 years. Correct. Is that right? Good job. Yeah. Or 100 years if it's a... Um, if it's a corporate entity that's that's the author, um, if it's a work made for hire, so um, so ni- anything prior to 1924 is for sure in the public domain. There's a lot of because copyright law changed several times since 1924. Um, there's there's some things that could be in the public domain from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, but may not be, and so it's really very difficult to determine whether they are or not. Um, at the time, the law was that if you published it without notice, of, without a, like a little circle C notice, um, then you were dedicating it to public domain. And that's where a lot of misconception, I think, comes from. There was a time where that was the case, but that has not been the case since the 80s. <laughs> so, um, you know, you don't have to put a copyright notice on something for it to be protected by copyright law anymore. That hasn't been the case for a long time. Um, and you don't have to have done a registration for something to be protected by copyright law under our current statute, copyright subsists in an original work of authorship from the moment it's fixed in a tangible medium of expression. That's what the statute says. So um, so it, it exists, man. It's very existential. You take it out of your head, you put it on paper, and it's protected by copyright law. Yeah. Well, that's, it's great that it works that way. Yeah, it is. I mean, and, and the reality is that we do sort of have a little 80-20 rule going on here because so many people operate on common misconceptions that 80% of the time it doesn't turn out to be a big deal. But there's that 20% where you get bopped with you know, someone coming after you claiming $70,000 in damages for a couple of photos that you used on your blog, and now you're being sued in federal court for that. And... You know, that's not the lesson that you want to learn here. So well, It's like anything else when there's a statutory right to attorney's fees. You can bet there's a cottage industry out there of lawyers who are looking to make some money. And as lawyers ourselves, yeah. we're probably decent targets for those Absolutely. types of actions. Absolutely. I mean, especially, you know, one of the things that I always – one of the conversations that I always have with my children is I look, dudes, like you need to – understand this stuff because I will get no mercy if someone in my household <laughs> does something, you know, downloads pirated software or any of those things. Um, you know, so so because I will get no mercy, you get no mercy. You will know this and you will do it correctly. My, both of my sons, um, I'm very proud of them, just uh, saved a bunch of money and bought themselves new computers. And my older son actually built his computer from scratch. Nice. And he was like, oh, do I really need to buy a Windows license? I'm like, yes, you really need to buy, you know, because he didn't buy it, you know, off right. the shelf. He had to buy a Windows license. Like, you know what? Together, yeah. I'll, I'll throw you a bone. I'll split the cost of the Windows license with you. But if you want to have Windows on that computer, and he actually has it dual booted with, with another, uh, with Linux too. But if you want to have Windows on that computer, which you need to for the games that you want to run, you have to have a Full license. Thank you very much. Well, that's very geeky. He's that running Linux geeky. and building. He his own is. System. Yeah, he's he's going to be a computer scientist, I think. And I guess the the end of this is, you know, if people do get into trouble, you were someone they could call for help. Yeah, right? absolutely. And I've worked with all sorts of 
industries. Uh, a lot of web designers call me. Like one of the things that happens a lot is particularly with small business, you don't have an in-house web design firm. You hire someone outside. Um, you may or may not have gotten the proper paperwork in place to actually own whatever it is that, that person created for you. But the long story short is two years later, you have this website that you paid for and whatever, and that you know that, that other small business owner you've lost track of, and then you get the cease and desist letter. Um, and you don't know if they bought a license or not because you haven't followed that through and you don't you don't have a copy of it and if you can't find them you're just kind of like well I don't know and unfortunately I don't know is not a good enough answer for the for under copyright law but there's a lot of things that can be done to really analyze the claims that are being made and have a good sense of you know first of all you're not always entitled to attorney's fees you're not always entitled to those statutory damages you do have to have a registration for those and the registration has to be timely and so that's a place where people play games and Mm -hmm. and if you know what you're looking for gives you the opportunity to poke some holes i can poke some holes i often can you know i have one right now where um, there's some gamesmanship going on, and I'm calling it out, and I'm sure that it's going to settle for a small fraction of what the initial demand was. We'll see. But uh, when I mention a lot of lawyers who are doing those things, the way they make money on that is doing it uh, in mass. Yeah, right. There's, there, there's a volume. volume, so they yeah. probably don't fly spec every claim. They just make them and. Well, I mean, I think they also count on people being intimidated, which they are and which they should be because it is scary to get, um, you know, to get a letter saying that you're being sued in federal court for copyright infringement. Um, and it's, it sounds really scary to say your exposure is $150,000 per work. If you had 20 photos on your website, that's a lot of money. That's a big exposure. And there's a lot of pressure to settle for those reasons. So um, I think it's really important to have someone who understands copyright damages law on your side when you're doing something, when you've been hit with something like that, because if you don't, um, you can way overpay for getting out of the case. And it, it does make sense to pay to get out of the case, don't get me wrong, but you may not have to pay as you know anywhere near what they're demanding to get out of the case. So if people are managing social media for an organization like the APS, what sort of things should they be thinking about when they're managing that content? I think one of the things that I have tried to do for all of the bar associations, and I think that anyone who wants to do social media for their firms should really think about, is think about what kinds of content you're posting, what sort of timing you're using for posting, um, and 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 just have a plan for all of that. Like I actually wrote out guidelines for what is and is not appropriate for the appellate practice section to post. Like, we are not going to post about a judge election, for example. (laughs) You know, we're not going to weigh in on presidential politics. That's not our role here. Um, We're going to talk about events. We're going to live, you know, live report on things that are happening now when people are interested in things that are happening now. We're going to promote things that are going to be happening in the future. You know, those kinds of things. Um, And you can do that same kind of planning for for your firm and or personal social media. So just think it through a little bit. One of the things I've heard people talk about is the right times to make posts to get the most impact. Sure. Do, you, do you believe in that? I do a little bit. I mean, I there's there's various research. Um, for me, I I think that um, 
I, I have just personally observed because I can see on the back end when people are seeing things that I've posted on behalf of the appellate practice section, for example. Um, it looks to me that posting something somewhere between 7 and 8 a.m. gets a lot of interaction all day. People tend to be reading social media while they're blow-drying their hair and, and getting ready to head out and those kinds of things. And so um, the other key for getting a lot of interaction is is having – the more people look at something and interact with it, the more other people see it. And so what I have found for APS at least is that if I post something early-ish in the morning – it builds momentum throughout the day. Um, if you talk to the Florida bar, uh, the person in charge there will tell you, oh, you have to post like six times a day and get all this you know, interaction. Um, that's not what I'm doing for this. And, and there are times where we can post more often when there's a live event going on, for example. But I'm real happy if we get one thing every workday. And sometimes... Sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's one thing a week. It just really depends. You know, I'm running a full-time law practice on top of trying to do this, you know, for as a volunteer position. So, um, but what's nice is that slowly I've pulled other people in to help with the posting as well. And the other thing is you can plan things out. You know, for example, when it comes to things like events, um, I got a list of the CLEs over the summer and spent down, sat down and spent, you know, two hours creating graphics for all of them and um, creating those events on Facebook, for example, and creating, you know, pre-scheduled posts about them um, to garner, um, garner, you know, excitement and advice kind of thing. So, you know, it doesn't have to take a lot of time. There are times where setting down and spending an hour to plan out multiple things will sort of, like, pay you back later. Um, but there's also that element of when you can – interacting daily to kind of like do the, you know, on Twitter especially, doing the retreat and doing the interactions with, with members and those kinds of things. Yeah, sort of staying at the forefront and sure. keeping people's attention. Exactly. So you know from listening to the podcast that I have a list of questions I ask everybody that comes on the show. And I'm ready. It's been – it's generated a few interesting things, um, but sometimes it shows me that we're a very homogenous group, but let's just see. Okay. So in your legal writing, Oxford comma, yes or no? Absolutely. One space or two after a period? I am still a two spacer because even though even back even back when I was in college 25 years ago, I remember very distinctly I took a I was a journalism major and I, and I took a class on page layout and editing and design and we actually had a textbook entitled the Mac is not a typewriter. And it was a wonderful book about typesetting. I mean, I know, I mean, it was very early on, like a Mac was a brand new thing, but I still have that book on my desk because it was about typesetting and very, you know, detailed explanation of why you need to have one space and why you don't need, you know, we have proportional type now, you don't mm -hmm. need to do all those things. And I get all of that, but I think that legal writing looks too crowded that way. And so while I'm happy to have one space in a novel, um, because, you know, proportional type takes care of it all. I just feel like in, in legal writing, it makes it easier for the judges to read, and the judges are who I'm trying to please. So two spaces. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I agree with you that it's a distinction. Uh, I kind of got to the point where I like it everywhere that I write. But in legal yeah. writing in particular, because it's so dense and because we put in citations at the end of sentences, that little bit of white space it's just helpful. Yeah, I agree. It's a good clue to the reader, I think. Yeah. I feel like I have to like state that I understand the typographical reasons for one space. But, sure. <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
What about uh, case names and briefs, underlining or italics? I'm an italics gal. Yeah. Westlaw or Lexus? I Westlaw. I much prefer the Westlaw interface, and I am a creature of habit when that goes iPhone or Android? I have an iPhone. I did have Android for many, many years and BlackBerry before that, but I finally sort of took the iPhone plunge about two iPhones ago, and I'm here to stay. Now, do you use an iPad, too? I do. Um, And in fact, one of my earliest popular blog posts was about using an iPad at oral argument, Um, and I probably wrote that in maybe 2012 or 2013, I mean, a while ago. Um, And, uh, you know, I kind of like to joke about... I used to carry a whole, you know, big notebook of stuff with me that I never looked at. Now I can have that all on my iPad. But, you know, my... <laughs> it's my, a security blanket, but it's really... It's more like a security tarp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's just a lot easier. And I... So I... I when I, Once I learned to use a PDF reader to read on the iPad, I found that very liberating because it felt so much more paper-like than reading on a computer screen. And, um, and I could do my very tactile marking things up and writing on it. Um, so I use an iPad. I've actually gotten better at not using it and reading things on the, on the big screen on my computer now. But when I go into OA, I still go in with a single piece of paper and my iPad. And on my iPad, I have opened up, you know, whatever page in the record I'm most concerned about, you know, maybe a case or two. Um, and I just have it available to me that I can but, – but I have at my fingertips every case cited. I have at my fingertips the entire record um, and so – and every brief. And so I can find what I need to find, um, especially when I'm the appellant. If I need to find something to be ready for a rebuttal, I'm ready for it. Let me talk about that on a show sometime. I, I would love to use the iPad or oral argument. My problem – my personal problem, mm-hmm. and it's a personal issue, is that – the law firm here requires us to have certain security software on the iPad in order to connect to the network mm-hmm. that forces it to lock after three minutes. Right. You know, and so I can't just put it up on the podium and expect yeah. that it's going to be on, and that's yeah. an issue. So I do turn off that feature mm-hmm. when I go into oral argument and Which have I it can't. set to not be to stay on throughout the duration of oral argument and then yeah. I turn it off again. So yeah, so that that does make it hard. And that is hard and I have actually for a while, I was very diehard. I must have the iPad and, and the one sheet of paper and nothing else. Um, occasionally now, if there's something really important from the record, for example, I might bring a sheet or two and have it just kind of shoved behind so that if I'm really, you know, if I really need to grab it quickly, I can um, or that kind of thing. Um, but I like having my argument at least down to one page and then having using the iPad for everything else. Now, let me ask you, I've not asked anybody else this, but you're you're essentially a solo practitioner, small firm, small, small firm, firm practitioner, mm-hmm. and you like the iPhone and you like the iPad. Do you use a Mac? You know, when I opened my firm, I did, and I still have a Mac at home, but um, <clears throat> I was unfortunately very frustrated by, by using um, small firm software on a Mac, and it was very, very difficult to, for example... QuickBooks on a Mac does not work very well. And Quick, the Mac version of QuickBooks syncing with my case management system did not work very well. Mm-hmm. And so, and the Macs, by the way, are four times the price. And so mm-hmm. when it came to the point where I was going beyond just me and a laptop and had to buy computers for um, multiple folks, I gave up and I bought I, I bought PCs. Um, but, and I just think that, the, that right now that's more robust for legal software applications. Um, but I've tried very hard to keep things um, 
simple. And there's a wonderful listserv called Mac for Lawyers that I was on for many, many years um, that's very, very helpful in that regard. But even things like um, using uh, appellate CMECF on a Mac is extremely difficult. And I had to like, and I, I remember the first time I tried to do it, you know, on a deadline, couldn't figure it out, got some information from that from that listserv that I had to save and look back on every time. It shouldn't be that hard. No. And so at, that's the point where even though I use my iPad and my phone, we have PCs in the office. Sorry, that was a little long-winded. But. That's all right. Now what about for pleasure reading? Do you prefer to read in paper or on a Kindle or a Kindle app? I'm going to say none of the above. I tend to go to audiobook nowadays. Really? And that is because um, – that is because I don't really have a lot of time for pleasure reading. Sure. Um, and, and so I started really getting into audiobooks. I, I remember because my, my dad listened to audiobooks when he commuted, and I used to be like, why would you not just read? Um, once I was a working parent, I kind of understood it a bit more. Um, when I was commuting downtown 45 minutes every day, um, that became a big – the only way I got to you know, read a book was to listen to it. Um, and I have come to really appreciate – uh, a well done audio, a well read audio book is as a depth. For example, like one of my favorite recent books um, that I listened to was Trevor Noah's Born a Crime, uh, which is his autobiography about mm-hmm. growing up in South Africa. And um, read by him, you can hear the pronunciation of South African terms that I would not have known what they sounded like on how, had I been reading it on paper. Um, read by him. You know, you really feel like you know his mother and grandmother by the end of it, right? And so it adds a depth that that I don't get from paper books. If I'm going to read, I go back and forth. I usually will buy something on um, on Nook or Kindle and read it on my iPad. I don't have a separate device. I just read. It. I have an iPad Mini, which is a good size for that. Um, but uh, but sometimes I just want a real physical book too. So um, if I want to take notes, I want a physical book. Do you have a particular source that you use for audiobooks? Um, I use Audible. I just, you know, I, they I seem to I, be the yeah. The, they're they're kind of the leader, and I have the um, I have the sort of one credit a month plan, and so um, you know, I always <laughs> I always think about is this book credit worthy? <laughs> I've paid fourteen dollars for this credit, and if I can get a you know a thirty dollar book for it, then I'm like, yeah, I got my I got my credit worth. Um, you know, if it's a cheaper book, I make sure I actually pay for it instead of using a fourteen dollar credit. And some um, of those audiobooks are three hours, and some of them are twelve hours. Right, right, right. And so, especially when I was commuting and trying to make my one credit a month last, um, I looked for longer books on purpose to try and you know use that time up and fill that time before I ran out of the credit and had to wait for another one kind of thing. I was trying to keep myself on a budget kind of thing. Um, but 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 it just – that way I can read while I'm folding laundry and I can read while I'm in the car and I can read while I'm doing the dishes. And so it just really um, keeps me a lot more occupied. So, Dean, how can people best get a hold of you? Sure. Well, um, you can find me um, – our, our firm website is wwwip Dash appeals a p p e a l s dot com, um, which you can email me at Deneen at ip dash appeals dot com. Um, Facebook Deneen Waslick, Twitter at Deneen Waslick, um, <laughs> LinkedIn Deneen Waslick, um, W a s y l i k not way slick, um, and uh, oh yeah, or give us a call at eight one three seven seven eight five one six one. 
Gene, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time and your insight. I hope that uh, you'll join me on the podcast again at some point in the future. We'll, I'm sure we'll find something else to talk about. Sounds great. Thanks, Dwayne. Thanks, Denise. My thanks to Denine Wasilek for being my guest on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you need the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, ddaiker at shoemaker.com. My contact information is always in the show notes, which you can see on the web or in your podcast player. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions on the show. Also, I'd love it if you could help me leverage the power of social media, like we've been talking about in this episode, to help spread the word about this podcast. If you like it, send out a tweet or make a Facebook post so that others can find it. And if you want to leave a five-star review on iTunes, that'd be great too. I've got another show coming up in two weeks. I hope you'll keep listening. And as always, thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.